Okay, we're here with Stefan Raymond, who is a Canadian living in South Korea. And um, I'll let you sort of introduce yourself and tell us what brought you to South Korea, uh, what you do there, um, how long you've been there, all that kind of thing. And then after you sort of tell us who you are, uh, I'd just, I'd love to hear from you. You wrote this, this great blog, a couple of blogs actually, about, um, you know, your experience being in South Korea while the whole COVID-19 crisis started happening. Um, and there's a lot of interest and a lot of talking about, you know, comparing how South Korea has handled it to how other countries and especially the U.S. have handled it. So I really wanted to get your take on that. Um, so if you could just start by introducing yourself and saying, you know, what are you, what are you doing over there? Well, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Stefan, as you said. I'm a EFL educator and also work in the areas of uh, education and health and wellness, copywriting and just content development. So EFL is English as a foreign language. So uh, I'm teaching children as well as young adults in you know, the art of English, everything from phonics ABCs all the way up to current events, discussion classes, um, and modern philosophy. So that's really amazing and a big passion of mine. And it started about nine years ago in 2011, when I first came to the country. I currently reside in Busan, South Korea, which is uh, quite, quite a ways from Seoul, which is the city most people associate with, with South Korea. Uh, it's a beautiful city. It's amazing beaches and mountains and just a really kind of relaxed vibe compared to the big city. So that's, you know, uh, big city of Seoul, that is. So that's really what's kept me here, along with just a very you know, vibrant community and um, just really great job prospects as well has been really nice. In terms of copywriting, that's something that I've been doing for about a year now. Um, writing has always been a passion of mine, just like growing up, education kind of was always in the purview. So yeah, I moved into to writing and it's just kind of developed based on my personal interests. And those are the niche areas I've decided to focus on. Okay. And um, so I got to know you through your blog. You wrote, uh, you had this blog piece called Why I'm Not Going to Just Come Home, A Letter to North American Friends and Family. And this was on, I believe it was March 1st, um, regarding the COVID-19 crisis, pandemic, whatever you want to call it. And I guess your friends and family were saying, oh my God, come home or you'll be safe. And um, so what, what prompted you to write this and what, what was, what's sort of the takeaway of this, of your blog piece? Well, for me, I express my thoughts and feelings really well through, through writing. I've always had a little bit of a, a problem expressing myself verbally when it comes to these really strong emotional situations. So in terms of that particular blog piece, uh, it's really funny. My uh, family specifically has actually been really great. Um, living in South Korea, there's been a lot of scares over the years, especially you know North Korea and aggression and different things going on. So they've never really been too bad in terms of come home, come home, come home. But what I did see on social media, especially from uh, the friends and family of my American friends, was a lot of this just come home, just come home, just come home. 
And it just really stirred a lot of feelings within me to the point where I just had to get it down. I had to just sit there to type it all out and put this all into two words to organize my thoughts and feelings around it. Because the week prior was when things started to get really insane here um, in Korea. The cases were just shooting up um, and there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of strong emotions, and um, I guess a little bit of, you know, panic and stuff. And my personal mental health was just at a point where I really needed to reconcile what was going on. And the, the idea of leaving and going back was not something that I was really able to consider. So because as I mentioned, I've been in, in this country for almost 10 years now. And so when people say, you know, just come home, I would say that Busan is as much my home as anywhere else uh, in the world has been. And you know, I've lived more than a quarter of my life here. So, you know, um, yeah. I am home. Yeah. And it was just a reconciling of the, the situation here and a lot of respect for how Korea handled it in the first few weeks when things got bad. And then also, you know, that's just continued to develop since then. So um, you said in, in the weeks previous to your writing this, that there had been sort of a lot of fear and a lot of panic. How did that manifest where you are? Because we've had a lot of fear and panic here. And I'm guessing it was not, I'm guessing it's a little different where you were. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit tough. So in the beginning, there was a lot of denial. Um, and I was definitely in that group where, you know, we've heard about these illnesses coming out of China before. And uh, more recently, actually, we dealt with MERS here in South Korea, which didn't come out of China, came out of the Middle East. And um, you know, they weren't as huge as this. So there was some skepticism, I guess, about this being as serious as it was. There was definitely uh, a strong pervasive feeling of panic amongst my Korean friends and coworkers. They were, you know, quite, quite sensitive to, to what was going on. And that's a little bit what tipped me off of, oh, you know, this is probably pretty serious because this is a group of people who when Kim Jong-un is ramping up and parading missiles down the street and stuff, they're just like, ah, whatever. He's just doing his thing again. Right. So um, when people were starting to get unsettled, I thought like, oh, OK, you know, this is something to be serious at, the, at my workplaces. They were like, you know, we have to wear masks now. Um, we have to really ramp up the hand washing, especially with the kids, um, because they, they're, they're just learning, right? So um, it was a lot of like, at the beginning of every class, at the end of every class, a lot of reminders to not, you know, touch their faces, play with their masks, things like that, which can be pretty tough with little ones. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot. And then the turning point in Korea was really around midway through February. So um, there's now an infamous patient 31 mm -hmm. and she is associated with uh, a kind of shady religious group cult uh, called Shincheonji Church of Jesus. And they have um, around a, a 300,000 strong 
like follower base. And they congregate in groups of hundreds, if not sometimes thousands. So she attended several services while she was infected and also refusing to be tested. And so managed to spread it to several hundred, you know, fellow uh, Shincheonji members. And then Korea being the small country it is, those folks um, took it back to their, their corners of the country. And so we went from, I think it was on February 18th, 32 reported cases. She was one of those two. And then by February 29th, we were at almost 3,000. Wow. So it, you know, it really just blew up. It was exponential. And um, luckily the city that I'm in doesn't have nearly as many. The main base of concentration in South Korea has been a city called Daegu, which is kind of in the center of the country. It's about um, 88 kilometers north of where I am, which is about 50, 55 miles. And it's about uh, 240 kilometers south of Seoul, so which is about 150 miles. Okay. So, and is it, are, are, um, I mean, I'm getting the sense that where you're living, it's not as concentrated. Is Daegu also very concentrated in terms of population density? Because we hear about Seoul as being intensely dense population-wise. All, all of Korea really is. So Korea is uh, a small country and 70% um, of it is mountainous. So really this population of over 50 million people lives in approximately 30% of the land area. Um, and so you're, you're talking uh, a country, I think it's about the size of Colorado. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Colorado is only about 40% mountains, if I'm not mistaken. So it gives kind of uh, a sense to people of how, how packed in folks are. So it's a very population-dense place any, anywhere you go in the city. There's very few houses. It's all high-rises and tall buildings and things. So um, Daegu is not the largest of the cities in the country. Um, it's, I can't remember the population, maybe about 1.5 million people. Uh, so it is fairly small by uh, comparison to Seoul. However, it is the headquarters and the center for this Shincheonji uh, organization. And that's where they've held their main meetings. So that's okay. why it has kind of evolved as the, the epicenter for Korean cases of COVID-19. Um, and I think the last that I read, it accounts for that area is at least like 60, if not 70% of our reported cases. Wow. Wow. So the thing that what we're hearing over here is, and I've read a little bit about of this, but as I've said, it's been really hard to keep up with everything. Um, you know, we're hearing how, first of all, Korea right off the bat started doing a lot of testing, started testing people as they were coming in, tracking them, following them. Um, they really sort of hit the ground running with that. Um, and then we're also hearing that there haven't been the heavy handed crackdowns like the lockdowns that we've had in China and also in the US. Could you just go into a little more detail about what exactly has it been like? How has, from the beginning of this, how has the Korean government and Korean civil society responded to this? 
Well, yeah. So I, I guess the biggest thing that happened right away was just kind of the postponement or canceling of university and schools. And that was a really big signal, I think, to a lot of people. So the South Korean school year is different. It follows the Japanese model. So the beginning of the year is in March. And when this started to really ramp up and get bad, the kids were on their kind of spring break prior to the new, um, the new school year starting. So they decided, well, we're going to delay this an extra week. And so there was kind of this, this two-week pause. As well, during that time, um, there was uh, a request from the government, not an order, but a request for all kind of private academies and institutions that educate children outside of the mainstream school system to close. And for anyone that's familiar with, you know, China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, these uh, very education centric right. East Asian countries that the additional schooling is, is really a big part of society. Some kids, you know, they're in classrooms here 12, 14 hours a day mm-hmm. to, to, you know, get the leg up and compete with their peers. So when there was just this accepted wide shutdown, I think it really showed a lot of people that, oh, this is a big deal. You know, I never thought I would see the day where the education system would just come to a grinding halt in this country because it's such a juggernaut. You know, the private education industry here is billions. It's with billions and billions and billions each year. So um, for the government to just kind of go, hey, can you not meet? And, you know, the, it was an order for the public school system. The universities voluntarily postponed class start times and the academies voluntarily shut. So it's been, you know, it very kind of, oh, yes, big thing going on. And then I think just the general feeling in society as well that I mentioned earlier, there was that, that fear and it just drove people inside. There didn't really need to be a sharp order from the government to say, no, you have to close. No, you have to do this. So a lot of small businesses just took it upon themselves to just shut their doors, go home. Um, The, uh, you know, the, general feeling in terms of going out to the places that were open was a lot of caution. People were going out only when they really needed to. There was no, you know, when hanging did this, out at cafes bars when did anymore. This start, when did this start happening? When, when do you think it really hit people that, oh, wow, we should really be staying inside? I think in those last couple of weeks of February. So especially when just those announcements came that, school is delayed, everything, and those numbers really started shooting up where we had, you know, hundreds of cases every day and it was just more and more and more and just watching that that ticker kind of climb slowly. Nowhere near as exponentially as Europe and North America have experienced, but mm-hmm. for us at the time, because we're the largest group outside of China, it was just so much uncertainty. When is this going to end? Yeah, yeah. And do you feel so... As, as far as like, well, let me get back to exactly what, what the policies were. Did you have, were there, um, were there lockdowns? Were there travel restrictions, quarantines, that sort of thing? There was a lot of recommended quarantines and recommended ways to behave, but people were already just kind of doing it themselves. So I don't think the government had to come in so heavy handed. There wasn't the pushback that I'm seeing in 
European and North American communities where people are seeing the encroachment of government policies as a threat to their freedom. Um, and it's been a very different response in that way. The feeling I've had from, you know, reading things and just watching what's been happening is Europe and North America has in the beginning really responded in a way that this threat is similar to terrorism, for example, like we won't let our, our way of life be compromised. We're going to continue to go about our business. We're going to do this. We're going to preserve our freedoms and our way of life. And it's a different threat. And the, the virus has no goal. It has no uh, manifesto. It doesn't want to disrupt our society. It doesn't care. And so that response you know, I think has led to the mass outbreaks and the mass amount of cases that we're, we're seeing elsewhere. Whereas here in Korea, there was just this general acknowledgement that, yeah, this, this is a threat. This is what is here now on our table. And this is what we have to do. We just have to kind of hunker down. Um, and it's been pretty, pretty good for about four or five weeks. However, now there's a lot of news coming out that you know, oh, recovered cases are outnumbering new cases and things. And people are saying, oh, we've beat the virus and whatnot. Um, and so I'm seeing complacency kind of wash over the populace. So I still have to head out sometimes because I still still have a, a couple of jobs that I have to work. And so I'm required to travel across the city to, to get to that. And in the first couple of weeks, I would be on the subway or I'd be walking down the street and it would just be a ghost town. And uh, just yesterday, I was on the subway midday on a Monday to, to go teach uh, a student. And on the way back, it was like any other day. There was just hundreds of people on the subway again. And then I got off the subway to try and walk the rest of the way home because I felt uncomfortable being around so many people. And there were just so many people out and about. It just, um, it, it worries me a little bit because the the government now is sending out a lot of messages they communicate a lot through the emergency text message system here mm. and so they're, they're sending out these very polite messages like hey please stay home please don't congregate please don't do this and um it's a, a little bit weak people are just not taking it seriously so it's at the point where and i hope i'm wrong but I think there might be a resurgence of cases in Korea in about two to four weeks time if people don't, you know, follow the government's recommendation of, hey, you know, we're in these crucial two to four week periods of time here. Let's let's continue with what we've been doing. So what we is, made changes. What has happened to the numbers so far? So you had this huge surge at the beginning. Where are they now as far as as far as cases and then also maybe deaths hospitalizations those sort of things so yeah in the beginning um you know february 18th we had 32 cases as of yesterday i think we had just under 9,000. um the deaths have been very low and i think that's because in korea there's uh sampling is really um representative of how many people actually have it so because the testing has been so thorough they've been testing hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of people yeah. and making 
those tests available, um, you know, even for folks that aren't necessarily showing a ton of symptoms, they, they still have access to it at a very cheap cost. So for example, one of my friends just got his test results back yesterday from the hospital that's just down the street from me. Um, his cost out of pocket to be tested was about $24 American. Wow. And that's after our national health insurance kicked in before the health insurance, the cost of that particular hospital was about $71 American. So, um, in the beginning, all the testing was free. Now some hospitals are charging a little bit for it. And that price will vary depending on which hospital you go to because they do have different price points for the tests to be done. His test was also not one that involved blood work. So there was a more expensive test to be done, but it was, you know, uh, spit analysis, nasal swabs, chest x-ray. There was, you know, four or five things oh, that wow. he had done. Yeah. And so for, for $24, it's a lot it's, for 24 bucks. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that wide testing, that available testing, I'm sure you've seen news reports of the drive-through testing yeah. that's yeah. been on to keep people out, out of the hospital. So they don't have to decontaminate areas and risk infection amongst patients waiting to be tested. And I think you said something also, you said that there were special hospitals set aside that did not have any COVID-19 patients. So that was the impression I got that there are these special hospitals where you can go and be sure that you're not getting, what, what is that? What's that about? Yeah. So across the country, um, over a hundred different hospitals were set aside as not being places where you could go for treatment of this virus or testing. And basically that was just to keep folks, um, you know, secure, especially for at-risk populations. South Korea has a really, really large elderly population. It's, a, um, you know, uh, the birth rate here is very, uh, very low. And so the amount of older folks that live here are very high. And as we know, those folks need treatment for several different things. And the, the fear I think was that if every hospital is a free-for-all and there's no protocols involved, then there's this risk that folks aren't going to go seek other necessary medical treatment during these times mm -hmm. and it'll be for them. And then even at the hospitals that are admitting um, and testing for the virus, they all have pretty secure protocols set up. So uh, I know a South Korean nurse and she was explaining to me what was going on at her particular hospital, how they had, you know, designated a special entrance, and um, anybody coming for, you know, coronavirus testing had to come in through a special area. There was a whole triage procedure and a lot of just stuff in place as well to protect staff members mm -hmm. and, is, and support staff within the hospital doctors because they're, they're at such a high risk during oh, yeah. this time. Yeah. And the, your, your healthcare system there, is it, are the hospitals public? Are they private? Is it a mix? What's, how does that work? It's, it's a mixed system. So um, the hospital, and it's a tiered system as well. So there's different uh, levels to the hospital system. So there's tier one hospitals, two, three. And as you go up, they become more specialized. So um, 
a lot of them are connected or associated with universities and those tend to be the higher ones. Um, and so it's, it's a bit of a complicated system. I've never 100% personally wrapped my head around it, but I know for the most part that the basic national insurance that we pay, which is a small percentage of our monthly salaries covers a lot. And then the out of pocket cost tends to be very low. It can vary from clinic to hospital. So if I'm just not feeling well, I want to get checked out. I can go to a local clinic, see a doctor, you know, um, I've suffered from sinus infections, get a little bit of medicine for that. The whole thing will probably cost me about $5. Um, wow. so pretty, pretty simple. And when just out of curiosity, do they, do they use, um, traditional Korean medicine as well as, as sort of Western medicine? Is it a mix or how does, what's going on there? All of the hospitals, the big hospitals, will generally have a traditional medicine area, especially for folks who feel more comfortable with that. In my experience, it's never been specifically recommended to me. Um, so I think it's an option for people who want to seek it, but it coexists with more modern uh, medical practices. And Korea has really, really embraced modern medicine and technology and developed an amazing healthcare system that was really ready for this in a lot it of seems, ways. It's, it seems kind of incredible to me that you describe this very sort of complex system of these sort of, it sounds like, you know, not necessarily coordinated and different tiers and all this, and yet they were able to come together. They were, they were able to coordinate very well, it sounds like. Is that sort of typical? I think so. The, the hospital system here and that sort of response, I think, is just a bit of a reflection of Korean society at large, which is has a stronger sense of collectivism than probably, you know, European and North American countries do. And so the hospitals are not necessarily in direct competition with each other to make money, um, you know, within their, their structures. But when faced with something like this, it's not, oh, we have to continue to make money and profit off of it. It's we have to address this and shut it down because otherwise, you know, uh, we just won't exist anymore. And that's the sense, you know, that's my personal opinion on it and the, the feeling that I've had. And the rush, you know, just to put doctors and scientists to work on analyzing this virus, the emphasis on developing test kits even. So we started to run out of the test kits here and there was just also this large focus in the manufacturing industry of we have to make more test kits. And so within three weeks, the country was producing tens of thousands of these test kits, which and who is allowed was, them. Who was producing those? Was it lots of different companies? Was it hospitals? Was it? Um... Um, I don't have specific names or companies that I know of, but I know that there is a large manufacturing industry here. So it was probably tapped in order to produce these particular um, test kits. And that's something that we've seen in the whole world over, you know, um, companies that haven't necessarily been directly involved in a field jumping in. Like I was just reading yeah. about H&M, for example. Now they're producing protective gear and clothing um, for 
you know, hospital staff and workers and frontline workers and these folks, because there's a, a global supply shortage now. So they're tapping into their fast cash in resources and turning that over to be able to be of assistance, which is yeah. quite amazing. Yeah. We have in over here, we have breweries making hand sanitizer now. So Right. Yeah. That happened here in Korea as well. So one of the really popular uh, drinks in Korea is called soju. Um, and it's a clear alcohol ranges from anywhere from about 12 to 17%. Very, very common. Koreans love it. It's, you know, one of the most consumed alcohols in the world because Koreans just drink so much of it. Um, and one of the largest manufacturers basically turned a lot of their, their efforts into basically producing these hand sanitizers and helping out with that just so that there wasn't um, any kind of shortage. Mm -hmm. And as far as, the as far as the hospitals, again, it sounds like you guys didn't have the, the hospital overwhelm that we've seen, that we saw in Italy, and that, you know, poss I, I don't think they're there yet in New York, but that's one of the things people are worried about here is that we just won't have the hospital capacity. Sounds like you guys didn't get to that point. Is that right? From my understanding, that's, that's pretty much the case. Um, our concentration of cases was in Daegu, and I know they had issues with bed shortages, but it wasn't to the same degree that we're seeing in, in Italy, where it's basically, you know, like a war zone, and they have to decide, you know, who gets the ventilator and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, I know of basically one case where an older woman um, whose symptoms, I guess, at the time weren't incredibly severe was asked to return home, and she did pass away in her home. Mm -hmm. um, but that's one case that that kind mm -hmm. of made it in media. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely feel for her and her family. But overall, the, the response has been quite, quite good. And the city of Daegu, because it was a, the concentration point, they've had doctors and nurses and people from other cities coming in to help out mm -hmm. in terms of staffing because it didn't spread everywhere. Um, and there's enough folks uh, in the medical industry here to, to support that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier you were talking about people's sort of response uh, early on where they were concerned and so a lot of businesses were closing on their own accord and people were just staying in. What do you feel, one of the things we're really worried about here is that it's, it, it's kind of like they've just shut down the whole economy. There are going to be people who are going to go weeks without a paycheck, businesses that are, that are going to, that are going to fail, that are going to close because, you know, they're just, they're shut for a couple of weeks or months. Is that a concern in, in South Korea that the impact on the economy and people's livelihoods being disrupted? I think so. Very, very much so. Um, I mean, I personally have taken about a 75% pay cut. Um, so it's been really, really difficult in that respect. Um, but, in, and I think a lot of people are definitely panicking, um, in terms of what am I going to do with my finances? Uh, so there's a lot of kind of mm, soul searching in that way, but I think what's different here as well is, you know, we have to do this because if we don't do it, if we don't, you know, take this pay cut, if we don't do this, then there's going to be nothing left anyways. Right. The, the whole system will collapse if we have really, really high infection rates of this. We're talking not just thousands of people. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. 
So um, it's, it's a real risk. And I think in Korea, there is that sense. There's the Korean economy is very interesting in that there are really large conglomerates that basically took Korea from uh, an agricultural society into this really modern technology behemoth that we have today. And so some of those large companies like Samsung, for example, you know, there are these kind of dynasties and families that have a very large part in the, the workings of the country. Um, so they kind of buffer on one side. And then on the other side, there is a really strong kind of entrepreneurial small business um, feeling. So those, those are the guys I think that are most likely to be affected. Uh, I was reading one report about the government uh, drafting a bill for emergency funds, uh, $50 billion about U.S. dollars for things like small businesses, micro businesses, entrepreneurs, um, how that will be distributed. I'm not entirely sure, but I do get the sense that they're, they're looking at it and they're going to address it as as much as possible. But I think overall, it's just one of those impossible situations that, you know, yeah, I, I need to, to run my business. I need to make money. Like I would love to be able to go out and, and work. Um, but I've reached the point where I just have acceptance that, well, this just is impossible right now. And I need to find ways to live as economically as possible and also come to terms a little bit perhaps with some of my poor <laughs> budgeting choices of the past and <laughs> just kind of have a wake up call on this front because, um, you know, a, a country like Korea, I think the average person probably saves a lot more than the average American does. I was reading an article in the, Econ in, yeah, the economist recently, and it was talking about the situation in China where even rural poor are saving 20% of their income on the month to, mm -hmm. to help save for their futures. Whereas, in, you know, juxtaposed to that, the average American household, I think it was 40% of American households couldn't handle a $400 bill right. if they got right. much more than a $400 bill. And, you know, that's not, I'm not putting the blame on those households because it's not necessarily those folks' fault. Um, in my case, I'm, I'm going to take the blame and say I've, I've spent pretty irresponsibly over the years. I've indulged in a lot of travel, probably, you know, some home gadgets and things I haven't needed. But I know the economically disadvantaged across North America and Europe are in situations where uh, they don't have much choice but to be, you know, faced with, with these issues. And, you know, um, it's it's going to call into question how we support, I think, our vulnerable communities and where we channel money and how we conduct ourselves. Yeah, no, that's that's something that I was thinking about too, is you know, the just the difference from my experience in Asia of savings rates, mm -hmm. even among people who are, you know, not wealthy or even middle class, it's just I think sort of a very strong cultural Thing that you you save money, you put it aside. I think in in when I was living in Hong Kong, it was the average um, savings rate across the board was like thirty percent, and that's you right. know day laborers and you know street vendors and everybody. 
Um, that's kind of, that was the average. And whereas in America, as you say, it's, it's nowhere near that. So, um, I, I, I suspect that's probably going to make a big difference in, in how people there bounce back. Um, what would you say just from the, the people around you, what are, I mean, you, you sort of said that you get the sense that people are becoming a little more complacent now, getting back to normal. Um, is there a sense of fear anymore? Do you feel like there are things people are really worried about right now? I think there's kind of two camps right now. There's the, we beat the virus, let's get back to normal life. There's that mm. kind of feeling. Um, or also kind of in that category, there's the folks who are just kind of stir crazy and bored and going outside again. Yeah. And because of that population density that we mentioned before, Mm-hmm. It's not as easy to to go out, you know. I'm quite jealous of folks in um, North America and uh, Europe who live in more kind of like rural areas and stuff because they can just go for a bike ride and not come into contact with people. You know, I'm not I'm not able to walk ten feet outside without running into somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's just more people going outside. It's also spring here, so the weather is warming up. Um, because of the the lack of just industry and traffic, the air quality has improved a lot. Yeah, so, we've noticed that here too. Uh, as it's 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 a really nice time to be outside. So yeah. um, I don't you know I don't fault those people for for wanting to get out. So but there are those kind of like let's get back to normal or let's test this normalcy this sort of thing. And then there's folks in another group, and I would say you know I'm part of it, um, and also it's what the government is, is advising as well as like, not, not so quick, you know, um, we haven't beat this yet. We still have cases on, on a daily basis being reported. And, um, as we saw, it just takes one person, literally one person. Yeah. That's amazing. That's to to spread it so widely. And I know those were kind of very special conditions, but this past weekend, a lot of the, the churches decided that we're going to start our ceremonies again. We're going to have our congregations meet and stuff. And the government was like, wow, can you not do that, please? Um, And they threatened them with fines and things saying, you know, if people get infected because of your congregation and you're responsible for the whole bill, basically. Oh, interesting. Uh, But it, you know, that, creates the worry that, well, maybe people won't get tested anymore. Maybe people will lie about things because that's also been a really big factor. I think in Korea as well as definitely in China is not just the the lockdowns, but also the tracking of individuals. How do people feel about that? People just accept it. Um, It's just the way it is. So in Korea, basically, uh, in my city, we've only had, as of yesterday, I believe, 104 cases. So it's been quite low. We're a city of about 3.5 million people. So it's been very low. But every single time a person is confirmed, their itinerary for the past few days is published. Oh, wow. um, mm-hmm. Not with their name. Their identity is, is kept secret. But we okay. see where they have gone, um, what grocery stores, what convenience stores, uh, what medical clinics, anything of the sort, um, with the times, that sort of stuff. And it's the people themselves who are volunteering this information. So it really helps with with that tracking. So if they start to put pressure on, you know, sports facilities, religious organizations, these sorts of places to 
um, pay fines and things, people might not be as honest and mm -hmm. it'll some of that tracking. In China, it's been much, much more severe. One of my friends who was there was telling me how they have a system where she is um, using an app on the phone where basically you have your own personal QR code and as you move about, it gets scanned. So when you leave your apartment complex, it gets scanned. When you get on the bus, it gets scanned. When you get on the metro. And so this way, when you know a patient is confirmed later, they know everybody that was on the bus and can tell those people, hey, you've been exposed. It's time to quarantine for two weeks. And it's, it's in like compared to what we're used to in the West, this level of oversight and following is intense but you know it's worked in china it has worked so well if you look at the numbers in china these days they're reporting very few new cases on a daily basis and when you delve a little bit further into those numbers a lot of those folks are actually not even contracting it from in china but bringing it in with them from traveling abroad so oh, they are affecting cases entering china for various reasons um, so yeah, they're, they've done a, a quite a good job. The other thing about the Chinese numbers, a lot of people forget is that the majority of those infected approximately 70,000 out of 80,000 were all in Wuhan and Hubei province. Right. And in right. one section of the country, the other 1.3 billion people in the rest of the country, there's only about 10,000 cases, which is right. incredible. The, so their level of management has, yeah, it's been by, you know, some estimates very draconian, but it's what's been necessary for them to contain the spread of the virus, which could have just destroyed the country. Um, and I think, you know, in, in other places, they didn't take the signs at the beginning and the warnings and didn't go serious. There was no gradual buildup. So in Korea, there, there's been that feeling like, oh, we're kind of in this danger zone and it gets more and more and more and more and more. But I think the response in places like Italy or Spain or France or Germany or now the USA in several states where they're like, okay, shut it down, go home, you can't go outside, is such a change from regular life as well that people just aren't used to it. Whereas in China, it's just kind of like, yeah, like this is our government, this is how it operates, you know, we've got to do what we're told. Whereas um, in the USA, it's been such a flip as well. Well, what also what I notice is, or what I, what I'm the feeling I'm starting to get from what you're how you're describing sort of South Korean culture is, in the U.S. and also from my experience in China, there's a huge distrust of government, and with good reason. I mean, they have they have a history of you know, sort of a devastating history with their own government. So different obviously in China to the US, but it sounds like what you're describing is in South Korea is a culture of more trust in the government. Nobody, it's, it sounds like people don't generally think that the government's gonna take this information and then use it to, you know, throw dissidents in jail or control what you say or the kinds of things that you would expect the Chinese government to do. Is that, is that accurate? Um, I guess to a certain extent, I guess from, from what I've seen, the folks that have been really 
uncooperative and distrusting have mostly been uh, right-wing religious groups in South mm -hmm. Korea. And from the beginning, when the government was kind of encouraging people to stay at home and businesses to shut and schools to shut and things and not congregate in large groups, uh, there were a few religious leaders who were like, we're going to defy you and this sort of thing, not based on their religion, but based on their politics that is very opposed to the, the current administration. And so there has been that, that push. Um, so some folks definitely have made it political. You see every so often someone standing on a street corner with a sign denouncing the president of the country saying he's completely mishandled this. Um, and a lot of that is not necessarily even related to the measures that have been taken to stem the spread of the virus, but really the initial reactions. Because South Korea was very reluctant to place any travel restrictions mm -hmm. um, on other nations, specifically China. So China is a really important partner for, for Korea in terms of trade as well as tourism. Um, and education as well. There's one report I read, there was over you know, 70,000 Chinese students who come to the universities here. And so that was uh, a big concern for the universities. Um, and so there was no real regulation placed on the entry of Chinese nationals. Um, At all? That ha not even now? So, well, in the beginning, what it was, was there was, so Chinese people have always basically needed uh, a visa to enter South Korea, with the exception of one uh, visa-free zone, which was Jeju Island. That visa-free passage was revoked, and then anybody coming here then needed to apply for a visa. So I think what a lot of folks maybe don't consider is that they might have been stemming the flow of folks into the country in a more subtle way. So rather than officially stating a policy that might anger their Chinese counterparts, they mm -hmm. said, okay, well, you know, people from Wuhan can't come, but the rest of China is okay. Um, and, you know, those individuals would still need to apply for the regular visa process. So I'm, you know, I'm not passing judgment on that one yet. It'd be really interesting to study the numbers in about a year or two time to see how drastically they fell in terms of how many visas were approved. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see quite sharply in terms of, of that respect. Um, in terms of the rest of the government and trust, I think the focus has just really been on we're going to deal with the virus first and whatever kind of issues and distrust and uneasiness we have, we'll have to deal with that later. We can't deal with these things simultaneously. Um, so in that way, it's just kind of focusing on the problem that we, we have in front of us um, rather than trying to fight battles on too many fronts because it's, it's not going to work out very well. Yeah. Um, a few specific questions. So you're talking about travel restrictions. Were there travel restrictions um, from uh, Daegu? Is it Daegu or Daegu? Uh, Daegu. Daegu. Were there travel restrictions? Was, was that city quarantined or cut off in any way? Were there internal travel restrictions? Not officially. So when 
Daegu first started to explode as an epicenter, there was a lot of rumors going on um, about quarantining the whole city, locking it down, you know, basically turning it into South Korea's Wuhan. Uh, that never officially happened, and travel in and out of the city has remained possible. Um, what has happened is basically just people across the country not going there they haven't had to. And also what I've noticed so is employers in other cities and regions will not allow individuals into workplaces if they have recently visited Daegu. So they've basically said, no, you can't come to work. If you've been there, you've got to stay at home for two weeks. So just within society itself, people impose these restrictions. So it wasn't necessarily something that had to be officially handed down. People just thought, hey, this is a good idea and just started to embrace it. It caused a lot of friction, um, I think, uh, especially within the, the foreign community for folks that have had to travel or been to places or traveled through the city, things like that. And suddenly being told, you know, you're going to have to stay at home for, for two weeks and you chose to go there. So we're not going to pay you. Um, so there was uh, a fair few disgruntled folks that I saw, but in general, it was just something that was more or less accepted that, yeah, if you've been to Daegu, well, sorry, you've got to sit at home for two weeks. And without pay, is that so most companies are, are saying you're just, you're just sort of out of a job for two weeks or do they have? In terms of the folks that I know that work in education, for the most part, yes. Um, and the ones returning from, from travel abroad, uh, some folks I've read about, you know, they, they saw the canceling of uh, or postponement of school and classes as this opportunity to go and travel and go back to right. the U.S. and right. go to Europe and things. And, um, you know, they came back and the government, well, no, sorry, not the government, their employers were just like, well, you decided to travel during this time. You're not, you can't come into our school. You can't come into our facility for, for the next two weeks until we know for sure that you don't have um, this virus. And so, yeah, there, there, there has been a bit of that. I would say for the most part, though, that kind of um, situation and reaction have been more so outliers than the norm. Um, folks are a little bit more apt to just accept the responsibility like, yep, I did this. Now I have to stay home. So, um, yeah. and the... Various companies especially have been quite accommodating. You know, the, the work culture here is just as fierce as the education culture. People work 12, 14, 16 hour days sometimes. It's, it's a really an overwork culture and it's something that Korea will probably have to deal with in the years to come. And this is kind of, you know, a point in time when they can reflect on that because a lot of folks for the first time ever have been given the opportunity to work from home. Um, so I think when the companies turn around and they examine how productive people might have been in terms of working from home and perhaps having slightly shorter work days, they might you know, reconsider some of their, their operating methods. Yeah, I think we're going we're gonna to go through a similar thing here too. Um, we're getting close to an hour. I just want to ask a couple more really specific things. I'm just curious about... Um, you know, here in the U.S., we've had the runs on toilet paper, people going to the stores and like piling up the toilet paper and clearing the shelves of stuff. And in some places in the U.S., there are like anti-price gouging laws. So you can't raise prices of things. 
Um, two, so two questions, I guess. One, have you guys also seen like runs on things in grocery stores, for example, and have there been, if, if so, have there been sort of price controls and things or other kinds of controls placed on things like grocery items or, or you know, goods that everybody's going after? Well, in that first weekend, when things started to get really bad and we saw that that spike um, from uh, Daegu and just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people every day being diagnosed, there was um, a bit of a run on grocery stores. But the focus here was basically fresh produce, eggs, fresh meats, things like that. It wasn't mm -hmm. really any of the, the canned stuff, the frozen stuff. So I was able to go out. Um, stock my freezer with, you know, frozen chicken breasts and frozen veggies and stuff like that. Um, getting that kind of food wasn't really an issue. And I think it looked worse than it was, to be honest, because the way grocery stores work here is they don't constantly replenish stock throughout the day. Most of them put out a certain amount of stock for that day. And then at night, it's just, if it's been all purchased, it's just gone. Um, and so it created more of a sense of, oh, uh, they're, they're running low within a few days. Um, everything was pretty much stocked again. The only thing I had a little bit of trouble getting for about four or five days was eggs. The eggs were being bought up pretty quickly. So I just made sure I went when the grocery store opened and I was able to buy them. No problem. Um, in terms of other supplies and things like that. The toilet paper thing has been a phenomenon and I think it will be studied for the next 50 years in psychology <laughs> class. Uh, and a lot of grad students are going to write dissertations on it. So you but, guys had uh, that there too? We did not, no. Oh, okay. uh, nothing like that. There's been no run on toilet paper or cleaning supplies or hand sanitizer. If anything, hand sanitizer is more available now than before this. So why do you think um, that, why such a difference in, in that, in the toilet paper thing? What, what's different, do you think, about you guys versus, or the South Koreans versus American? I, I really, I, I'm not sure. I have no clear explanation for it. I've tried to do a lot of reading on, you know, the, the psychological effects of, like, overbuying and stocking up. So, um it's a little bit tough, but I think one of the things that really benefits Korea is they have such an intricate home delivery system for food and supplies and things. So I can do my grocery shopping online quite easily. Uh, I can order things um, like laundry detergent and toilet paper online very easily. A lot of it is next day delivery as well. And in some cases, it's cheaper than actually going to the store. Yeah, so we can too. I mean, I, I order my toilet paper on Amazon. And so I was looking at this just, you know, kind of in disbelief. Like, don't these people know? that? So I don't really know. I don't really know what was going on there. But um, yeah, I guess I guess it just wasn't um, as, as much of a, a necessity in that way for people to stock up for long periods of time. Because I, I don't think we maybe understood what was going to happen either. So in the case of the US or Western Europe, they've seen us go through it. They know that this is right. going to be two, four weeks, six weeks now. Right. Uh, start dating school is April 6th. So there is this sense of, oh, we need to be okay for this long. 
a lot of people just have no sense of what that entails and they're taking, you know, precautions like, oh, this is how we prepare for hurricanes. So I'm going to do the same thing, but a hurricane is perhaps a few days. Now we're talking about a month or two months. So they're, they're stocking up in a similar fashion. Um, so there is that, uh, I don't know that those are my best guesses. Um, in terms of the thing that's been in short supply here in Korea, it's really been face masks. Um, but even that supply chain in the past week, I I've seen them available, you know, at shops and subway stations and stuff. Again, uh, the government has actually really stepped up in that respect and they've instituted, um, a national plan where every citizen, has a designated day of the week where they can go to a pharmacy and purchase um, two, two masks, not many. So two masks um, at a reduced cost. So it's not even full price. It's being subsidized by the national health insurance uh, program. That but they they're available. There's not a, there's not a shortage of them because there's still a shortage here. Right. Yeah, they, they are available. Um, I mean, I bought a pack of 10 the other day at a shop in the subway. Um, Wow. Or, wow. you know, probably the equivalent of about $7 US. Um, so they're, they're starting to show up more. Um, I don't know what the, the total supply is. I know that in the beginning, there was a big issue in Korea and people were really angry because Korea does manufacture masks. And before things really broke out and became a problem here, we are actually shipping them to China to help oh, out with wow. their situation. And then people, then things started to get bad here. People were like, where are our masks? We make them. And it was like, oops, we, we, we sold them all to China. Um, so, but uh, now as well that China's starting to get back to normal, they're really ramping up production and really, you know, kind of returning the favor is my sense. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little bit of distrust amongst made in China items. Um, people are a little bit worried about that. Uh, I'm, I'm not too too worried personally um but yeah there that's the only real thing that has been Mm. in short supply is is the masks and i know there's a lot of controversy on should we wear masks should we not wear masks and different people and who says one thing and cdc says one thing but uh in korea i think they've been quite essential um especially in such a population dense place so the mask isn't necessarily to protect me from someone else, it's to protect everybody else from me in case I have the virus. Mm-hmm. And people need to think of it like a, a surgeon in the operating room. He's not wearing his mask to protect himself from the patient. He's wearing his mask to protect the patient from him. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's been really, um, essential in stopping the, the spread. So it's been very, very important that way. And just Eastern Asia has more of a, a mask wearing culture yeah. anyways. Yeah. Where for bad air quality, we wear them when we're sick, not to pass it on to somebody else, just, you know, regular common colds. Uh, people also wear them in the wintertime when it's cold. There's different types of masks just to keep your face warm. Um, and then, you know, you see celebrities and stuff wearing them to hide their identities uh, and that sort of thing. So mask culture is already been more prevalent here and because of that as well a lot of places just require you to wear them so if i want to go into the grocery store i'm supposed to wear a mask otherwise they can ask me to leave Um, public transport you hear announcements please wear a mask please wear a mask um 
I had to visit the immigration office a little, uh, a little while ago to renew my visa here. And it was required um, to, to enter the office. I was not allowed wow. into that building without wearing a mask. So, so we, we have to, to wear them. And those are just the, the policies. So whether I agree with it or not doesn't really matter. Um, in certain cases, I have to do it. And it just helps create a certain amount of social calm as well. Because if a lot of folks are in public and not wearing them, it kind of creates that that unsettled feeling amongst other folks in the general vicinity. So when I gives people talking, confidence to see other people wearing masks. Right. Yeah. So when I was talking earlier about crowded subways and pathways and stuff, trying to get home from work, uh, I maybe saw two or three people who were not wearing a mask. Uh, the vast majority are are still wearing them. Some of them not properly, <laughs> but uh, yeah. but at least they're wearing them. I should let you go. It's been it's been about an hour. Um, thank you so much. This is this has really been really interesting to hear this. Um, just to get a different perspective, it sounds like a very different experience from what we're sort of going through right now. Um, Say so. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Um, stay in touch. If, if, if there's anything, you know, if, if something happens and you feel like you want to um, have your voice heard or, or have something to say, uh, definitely stay in touch. Let me know and we can have you on again. Absolutely. Yeah. If I can just add one last thing yeah, before we finish yeah. up. Um, recently, in terms of just observing different people and the different reactions and responses to this, one thing that I came across was uh, approaching this situation with uh, the same mindset that, you know, a lot of people are going through various stages of grief. So um, there are the five stages of grief, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and mm. different people are in different stages of that right now. And we, we see folks really kind of coming at each other and being quite negative and not understanding each other. And so as I, I think personally, I'm kind of in the acceptance stage finally. Um, and realizing now that everybody is at a different stage and I might not see eye to eye with them, but that it's just really important for us to continue to focus on the good things and to be positive and all of the community efforts that are coming out, you know, all the, the artists and folks who are jumping on social media, producing mm -hmm. free content to keep us entertained, you know, the, the fitness instructors who are doing free classes on Instagram live, yeah. like yeah. all of these things. Um, there, there are a lot of really amazing things to to focus on and putting our energies into those rather than combating each other and coming at each other because at the end of the day we're going to be stronger together um and so take care of ourselves you know and then that way we can take care of each other yeah that's absolutely there's and there's it's such a great opportunity to, to do find positive things to do. And I'm seeing amazing things. I mean, people offering all kinds of things for free. I don't know. Um, Mo Willems. I don't know if you know him. He's a, a children's author, um, does picture books. He's been doing every day at lunchtime. He's doing a lunch doodle for kids. So you can tune in and do this. Like, it's like a drawing lesson with this, right. you know, renowned children's author, but all over the place, people are doing amazing stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's, 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 um, worth remembering. Humanity is learning how to be human again. Yeah. It, well, it's a, it's a great opportunity for it. And, um, fortunately we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that. Um, so. Absolutely. 
Thank you again. Um, and uh, be well, and we'll talk to you again. Yeah, stay safe. Okay, you too. Thank you.